Hi, and welcome to Walking on the Wild Side, a podcast dedicated to exploring the natural resources of the Southeast and hopefully instilling in you, our listener, a curiosity about our flora and fauna and fostering a sense of appreciation for the beauty and diversity of our natural resources. As always, I'm joined by my wife and co-host, Gabrielle, who is on her way to becoming quite the naturalist herself. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Walking on the Wild Side. We've got Bats Part Due. Yeah, this is a second part of a uh, podcast. Originally, we were just supposed to do one part with Trevor Walker, but my gosh, he's got so much good stuff. Yes. So we decided we were going to break it into part two. So what do you say we kind of listen in on them and see what they're going to say? Let's do it. All right. If you want to have a cat, keep it inside. That's my yes. biggest thing. It's yep. I have I have two, and I keep them indoors, and they're happy as can be, and don't have to worry about any damage they do yeah we we always talk about it. and i think i think people just need to understand who are cat people and and we always joke and say okay if you're a cat lover you may not want to listen to the next five minutes of this right. podcast <laughs> um but but they do because they're predators and they mm-hmm. do wreak havoc on on mm-hmm. especially lizards and there's not a, probably a cat person out there who lets their cat go outside that mm-hmm. can't admit that their cat has brought them a lizard back exactly. you know or a mouse or a bird mm-hmm. um but you know j- yeah be a responsible um pet owner, pet owner obviously mm-hmm. and so so i got a couple more questions that i want to ask got you one too yeah, shoot yeah, it out what you I got go back to these opposable thumbs bad habits they have so it, it's not opposable arms. thumbs but it's they have and, and it's modified in each species they have uh their the equivalent to our thumbs their bone right there it, it emerges as kind of like a little dew claw kind of sort of okay and they have a little bit of flexibility in it but they can't control it as well as we do and they but they use those to climb rock crevices and to grab onto the sides of houses sides of trees and stuff like that so and it helps them be able to maneuver whenever they are moving forward gotcha. in those positions does it help them in feeding at all um, any other purpose or really just for mobility i'm sure there is some bat species out there that uses their thumb somehow in feeding but i don't know about it okay. <laughs> I, I will say though uh whenever you I, get into the tropics there are some they uh they call them uh the suction cup bats and underneath their claw they have a little skin flap that acts as a suction cup because they actually roost in um, pitcher plants and they use it to stick to the side of the plant. Oh, man. How cool would yeah. that be? And, and we were talking earlier about looking for frogs in pitcher exactly. plants. Exactly. Could you imagine yeah. seeing a bat? Oh, I would, oh, I would be ecstatic. That would, be, <laughs> that would have to be the tropical ones that hang up in the, the vines and stuff. Right, yeah, okay. right. It's, uh, I, there's, God, that's crazy. I think there's a couple different species that do it, but don't quote me on that. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's pretty I cool. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. I'm learning all kinds of stuff tonight. Oh yeah, oh, he's tell why he likes bats, man. He knows all about them. I know, I know. It's got it all going it, on. Whenever I learned just how vast it really was and how many different kinds there was, it, it blew me away. And then to we got to when I was a student at NC State University, we got to go on a tropical wildlife study abroad, mm. and we got to go to Nicaragua. And I actually met the Nicaragua bat biologist, and I wow. asked him. I was I was struggling with my Spanish, but I was like, <laughs> I uh, I have my rabies vaccine. May I help you handle bats? And he's like, Yeah. <laughs> we ended up. Uh, I don't we, even care if you're vaccinated. No. You anyway. <laughs> we ended up uh, catching 13 species in a single night, God. and it was wow. it was amazing. And it just and it kind of I was excited about that because it actually gave me uh, kind of a baseline to compare to. Because mm. here in the U.S., we used to catch like. Before white nose ended up being uh, found in the U.S., you could catch probably anywhere between 60 bats in a night, and that was not unheard of. 
Right. Now, if you caught 60 bats, everybody's like, okay, who's lying? Like, yeah. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. a fish story. Right. It gets bigger every time. Well, yeah. yeah I, so we've talked a couple of times about um, about white-nose syndrome, and that that's mm-hmm. obviously something that's extremely important in understanding um, the decline of bats pretty much everywhere. But yeah. tell us a little bit about, one, how you how you study bats, how you – how you collect information? You know, is it visual? Is it auditory? Things like, yeah, and then yeah. tell us about that white nose. Survey. Okay, so uh, so surveying. Well, there's a couple different types of surveys you do, and it kind of depends on the time of year as well, uh, kind of where the bats are, because in the winter time they're more in caves and buildings and stuff. But uh, in the summer we do mist net surveys, and that's where we go out to an area that we uh, have determ- have either caught bats at before, or uh, we determine is probably a pretty good area to set up nets we look for we kind of look for roadways and streams that kind of create a funnel where the tree limbs kind of create this big tunnel Mm, and we put the nets there because as you know the bats they can see the nets they're they're not dumb so we kind of try and put them up in funnels where by the time the bat notices the net it's a little bit too late and they and they can't back out of it right yeah well they they still can get out of it right (laughs) reds actually another fact for you eastern reds are notorious for somehow they are able to like feel the net and they kind of they do this like little backdraft and they kind of just land on it and then they while you're trying to lower the net fast but slow so they don't like (laughs) they'll just kind of look at you and then right as you're about to walk over to grab them they'll just fly off because they're not that tangled so they're not entangling they're just kind of hanging yeah and it's 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 man i love them even more they're a very good escape artist that's awesome that's awesome so. Well, I know Gabriel and I actually participated in uh, one of the mobile uh, right. transect surveys. Yeah, that was so, fun. so that's yeah. the other type of data we collect is acoustic data. We uh, acoustic monitoring uh, has come a long ways in bats. We actually we do stationary acoustics uh, and then mobile acoustics, which is what you took part in, where we have an acoustic monitor. Uh, in the mobile, we have them strapped to cars, and you have to drive a certain route, and uh, you have yeah. to go a certain speed so you're not going too fast and stuff. But you're picking up the bat echolocation calls that are around that the, uh, the bat's flying around the microphone that's attached. Mm. And uh, we have gotten now, and it's getting more and more refined every every day. Wow. The acoustic calls are being used to identify species from the calls they do. Yeah, so with the technology and everything now, you've got software that you can run a lot of that through, but there's still quite a bit of intensive work that you have to do to prepare the calls. So a lot of my Otis species uh, actually overlap in some of the calls that they do, and Mm. you have to do some manual vetting of the calls themselves. Because even though Kaleidoscope is very good on the uh, identification, sometimes the my Otis calls, uh, they kind of throws up a flag like, hey, like we think it's this, but you might want to take a look at it. Uh, and uh, okay. and we you have to have people. There's people that make their whole careers out of identifying bat calls, and it's wow. they. Wow. We I got to go to Jacksonville, Florida, a couple years ago for a uh, a bat conference as well, and they uh, they had a competition to see who could do the most correct ids on the thing holy cow it was it was pretty cool and and for all you folks out there listening and stuff like that you may think what a bunch of nerds but i'm gonna tell you what that's pretty awesome if you ask me that's that's i'm excited about that i want my dream which will probably never happen my dream is to be (laughs) able to learn to imitate the calls and maybe like get a bat to like fly in oh my gosh yeah that sounds like that would be awesome (laughs) yeah Don't give up on that dream. I think you can make that happen. I practice all the time, but I can't ever get any results. We're going to come in. We're going to see Trevor like a few years down the road. His ears have gotten big. His face has gotten wrinkled. and 
He won't be able to talk. All he'll be able to do is just chirp. Yep, there he is. <laughs> <Just> all that. <laughs> so we mentioned it a couple of times, uh, Trevor. We, you know, we've talked about white nose syndrome, and you've alluded to it. But obviously, this is something that's um, really kind of wreaked havoc on the uh, populations of bats, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, white nose syndrome is actually a uh, a fungus that was first introduced in the U.S. and uh, it was first uh, found in New York. And there, but there's actually been a couple of genetic studies looking at the RNA, and they've determined that it could have actually come from a couple of starter populations mm. that, unfortunately, probably got introduced by some cavers. Uh, it comes from uh, Europe, which the bats over there evolved alongside it, so they are actually resistant to it. Oh, okay. But uh, but the bats over here have never been exposed to it before, so whenever mm. they went caving over there, brought the spores over here and then mm. thus the infection Spread. ensues but uh wow. it's caused by a the fungus name is pseudogymnomascus destructans and what it actually does nice. is it when these bats go into their torpor states it actually can grow into their skin uh on their wing membranes and uh, and on their nose and it causes a white fungal growth to emerge from their nose and uh. hence the name white nose syndrome and and being in caves mm-hmm. moist cool that is like the ideal place for fungus hey, to grow exa- in exactly that's... so does it grow that fast or are they just in torpor that long it's uh so it's um some bats can survive it uh but that's not the case for the majority of them uh, they're like the little brown bat has experienced in some states 99 percent population mortality oh, from wow. it but wow. the way it affects them is uh the arousals we were talking about earlier it actually affects their ability to arouse and causes them to arouse more frequently, and so uh, it's and like they expend energy, and, right? Uh, and they, uh, it's uh, okay. so every arousal is super energy expensive, and whenever they emerge or arouse more often, it's they're using up all of their fat stores, and by mm-hmm. the time they use up all those fat stores, they they can't replenish them in the winter time, and yeah. so and they essentially starve to death. And you'll walk into wow. caves. You will walk into caves, and it'll literally be littered with thousands of bat oh, bodies on the floor. Horrible. Man, and it's uh, there. There are some studies looking for potential cures. There's okay. uh, there a lot of people considered uh, vaccinations, but it's actually uh, really hard to vaccinate. <laughs> like in Bracken Cave, <laughs> yeah. to vaccinate 20 million bats. Yeah. That's going right. to be next right. impossible. But uh, what they actually found though was that in the genetic makeup of this uh, fungus it actually doesn't have the ability to self-repair so and they found that uh, UVC light actually kind of like eats it up so some people oh, okay. some people have been looking into that and one guy uh, or one paper I read suggested like oh let's put motion sensor UVC lights at the mouth of caves and when the bats fly out, It'll flash them, and it kind of takes the fungus off. But that's kind of impractical because we yeah. every cave in the United States we're not going to be able to run that kind of management mm. on. It. Right. And is this a flash exposure, or is it like an extended period they're going to uh, be? As far as I know, I think it's a flash exposure. Okay. But like we said, that's kind of impractical. So we actually have a group called uh, Bat Conservation International. If you're a bat nerd, you're very familiar with BCI. (laughs) BCI. And uh, they actually looked at it from the other end of the spectrum. They're like, well, what if we instead make the bats fatter so they have more fat to to use up if they get infected with this white nose? And uh, so the way you do that here in the southeastern U.S. is you manage for insects and you try and create more of them so bats are able to Mm. eat more bugs and get fatter. 
But, wow. of course, with each species, there's a threshold because they still got to be able to fly. <laughs> well, yeah. So, oh, so, so now we got bats that, you know, they're, they're overweight. The uh, population of bats now are, are morbidly obese. And, <laughs> holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of fine-tuning. It, so far, that is just an idea. And we are currently mm-hmm. trying to see how it would work. And, uh, but what their answer right now is they are putting out spectrum lights out near caves. They don't do it at the entrance because okay. they don't want uh, predators to make use of the lights to pick off bats. But oh, they want yeah. to attract insects to these lights, and the bats can use them as feeding stations that are oh, easily okay. accessible. Wow. And so that's an idea we're exploring as well. Mm. But uh, there's also there was a study that I can't remember where it takes place. I know it's in the southeastern U.S., but they're actually looking at uh, using antifungal uh, properties of a ripening banana and they have made wow. it made this chemical uh, more volatile and they're uh, attempting to test it on a man-made cave to see if they could spray okay. the walls of the cave to kill the fungus before the bats even come back to it for the winter oh, so, but but the hold okay. up the hold up with that though is uh, we don't know if it's going to also disturb something beneficial in the cave as well uh, so yeah there's a lot more vetting See, of that needs to happen yeah. correct so Seems like there's always something mm-hmm. that's going to throw it off well the so. thing is we just don't want to make things worse because bats are already yeah. ha- like we're already getting hammered with this fungus we don't want to yeah. do something that wipes them out we are trying to do the exact opposite and humans a lot of times we we have a tendency to mess with one thing and not truly figure uh, out how it's going to happen right. down the road. exactly I always <laughs> think about like rainbow and brown trout you know mm-hmm. when you think about trout fishing and stuff like that but but then the group wanted to come back and actually get rid of all the rainbow and brown trout it's like you, you, can't you can't do that they're now. here <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're so is there any possibility that bats on their own would would get a resistance to this so, at some point so yes yeah. so actually the little brown bat like i just mentioned yeah. uh in some Poor states it's called the uh the rescue effect if you're a geneticist you'll actually you'll be familiar with that as well so in that instance, the 1% that's surviving yeah. may have a genetic natural resistance. And since that's the only population left as they breed, that's the only genetics oh. that can pass out. But cool. we can't rely on that because right. it's uh, it's if the population is so low that yet even though they're breeding and stuff, they're not able to... Uh, they're not able to make up the population fast enough. Other things such as habitat de- uh, degradation and stuff like that could wipe them out as Oof. well still. So, well, and, and bats are uh, kind of a low fertility, slow recovering species anyway, right? Correct. So uh, some bats can live up to 30 years. They're the longest lived mammal per body size. And wow. Uh, wow. and they give birth. They're, they The normal thing is one to two pups a year. Uh, there are some exceptions. Every once in a while you'll get a bat that gives birth the quadruplets but that oh, that's that, be rare. that doesn't happen very often but and you guys we're on the front porch just to let you know we're getting a few a breezes here <laughs> but uh but that's okay because we're on the front porch but uh you know it, it's also too i think the other thing to think about as well is when you got such a population of like one percent then ev- eventually you can almost create a genetic vortex correct you know where they they may be able to survive white nose but mm-hmm. then if they get if they're exposed to something else it could just wipe them out because they're all almost genetically alike alike that's yeah. right yeah. Yeah. and so that's that's, that's kind thing. of the that's why you don't want to rely on just the genetic rescue yeah. effect gotcha so. well and, and i have also heard too that actually bats may be benefiting benefiting actually from climate change and global warming 
because the hibernation length is not as long and therefore may kind of help with the exposure to white nose or be able to make it through because they only spend all of their, I mean, you know, you so, hear all kinds of things. Yeah, so, so uh, when you get to talking about that, you have to be careful because it uh, comes down to regionality. So yeah, some yeah, some winters in some areas may be longer than others. And yet that they can benefit from it, but only in certain areas. Yeah, yeah, and, I know it's just... It's just because it's so devastating, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think people are reaching for anything to hang their head on because, I mean, 99% mortality? Holy crap, yeah, that's that amazing. Huge. Yeah, and, and that's actually even more uh, to that story. The little brown bat used to be our most common bat, and now it's pro- arguably probably the least common bat <laughs> that God, we come wow. across. And how long of a period of time? Uh, yeah. So of- uh, white nose was first detected in 2006. Oh my so gosh. you're talking about that's uh, literally a blink of an eye in right. in, in, our, right. in animals' terms and stuff. Exactly, man, that is crazy. So we're surrounded. I, I do have to ask this. Uh, you, we were talking just a little bit ago, and you, you shared a story because we were laughing at how our hummingbirds. You can pick them up in the microphone <laughs> because, I, I, you know, I know this is a podcast, but guys, y'all should see it. Our hummingbirds are literally flying inches from our faces, going <laughs> you had wondering one what we're doing. Just above your head there. <laughs> Uh-huh. But you were talking about going to Nicaragua and how you uh, you saw the hummingbirds down there and had a surprise that kind of related oh, to yeah. you a little so, bit. So down there we were staying on, uh, it's uh, called the La Finca de Verde or Green Garden or Green Hope, mm. I think is how it translates. Uh, and it was, um, they had, it was a shade coffee plantation, but where they also managed for all sorts of wildlife. It was beautiful. Oh, cool. And uh, on their little observation deck they had, they had literally thousands of hummingbird feeders set up everywhere and during the day you get multiple species of these hummingbirds coming but uh at night if you sat out there at night you would actually get some of the nectar bats that would fly up to the hummingbird feeder and start feeding and it's it was i I was i was the only bat guy in the group so i was (laughs) losing my mind like y'all guys like we got to get photos of this and everyone else was birders so they were all tired and ready to go to bed well i think the thing that shocked me was you were talking about because obviously a lot of these flowers that these nectar feeding bats want to have long corollas and you were talking about the tongue kind of snaking out yeah so it actually to me it looked similar to an earthworm coming out of their mouth and it was just like uh it was just kind of insane to watch but they actually use capillary action with their tongues to actually draw the nectar into their mouths oh my god and it was uh it was just really cool to watch and how fast they're it's just like watching a hummingbird they're beating their wings like super fast are they small like hummingbirds so uh so the nectar bats that we saw it was uh they were kind of like your average size bat maybe six inches best wing the tip of wing the tip of wing okay so but uh that's still pretty small yeah 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 yeah. so the largest bat we had down there uh was the pale face spear nosed bat and whenever we caught that guy uh even the biologist was getting excited because and i can tell he was speaking spanish but i could tell he was like real (laughs) he was amped and uh he said like we i had a translator there who's one of the bird professors and uh He's like he's saying they don't get many of these here, and so we got to. And wow. he he was probably like uh, like like that wing to wing. So for those for wow, our so that's what about 14, 16 yeah, inches, 14, yeah. 16 yeah. inches wow. wing to wow. wing. Wow. But uh, but that's here amazing. in the southeast or in South Carolina, the biggest bat that we would ever come across is the hoary bat, which they're actually okay. really hard to catch because they're really tightly associated with uh, stream sites, and if you're lucky, you'll get uh-huh. one. But uh, wing to wing, they're maybe five and a half, six inches best. Wow. Yeah, so it's... Man. 
So I, so I guess the big thing, too, is people who have bats around and stuff, you know, we talked about bat excluding, you mm-hmm. know, and, and there's obviously a time period when they have those babies. Mm-hmm. Since it's so extremely important for them to have these babies, mm-hmm. we normally don't want people to exclude bats in their attics and places like that where they can be tolerated. Right. Um, what's, the, what's that time period, like March to October so, or something like so that? So the or? biggest time is basically uh, March to about the end of july early august uh it kind of depends on the state you're in on what the laws are but uh the biggest thing though is uh if you have bats roosting in your attic you cannot guarantee that there is no endangered bat using that area and that falls under the endangered species act Mm -hmm. where if you do anything to harm those or to disrupt their mating and breeding and uh birthing there could be ramifications for it and so so any wildlife removal person will tell you, any legal wildlife removal person will tell you the same thing. And uh, But once those pups begin to emerge and fly kind of towards uh, the beginning of August uh, and moving into fall and stuff, they, uh, they'll actually kind of, in most cases, will leave on their own. And then you can board up everything. And, okay. and the next season when they come back, they'll just find somewhere else to roost. Cool. But I will say it's... Uh, I would be if I had bats in my attic. I would be like, like oh, no yeah. one go up there. Yeah. This is, this is, this I, is I wouldn't be like I'm embarrassed. I'd be like, guess what we've got? Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, it was really exciting because for the first time ever in my own neighborhood back home in North Carolina, I had one of my neighbors come up to me and uh, he's like, hey, you work with bats, right? And I was like, yeah. I was like, what's going on? He's like, I have some bats in my attic over my garage. He's like, and I, I just I wanted to ask some questions about them. Can you come to my house? I was like, yeah. And I went and it ended up being a uh, big brown maternity roost oh and cool. uh, so wow. he had he had probably about 40 to 50 big browns sitting up in there and Look uh and dog. he was like uh he was like are they gonna are they gonna do anything like and i said well the worst they'll do is you might have to clean up a little bit of bat poop and he's like well i'd do that anyways he's like i just <laughs> spray the side of the house off he's right. like, and uh he's like what like benefit do they give based because he didn't know much about them i was like well you'll keep your bug population in check and then uh you'll also be able to watch them emerge every evening which to me is very cool yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? that is cool yeah. and it's, it's the lawn wow. chair out there <laughs> exactly <laughs> Well, I know there's professionals out there that can exclude bats when the time Mm -hmm. is correct for excluding. And we always encourage people to exclude, not Mm -hmm. exterminate. Right. Right. And that's the Mm -hmm. big thing because of the populations and things. But we were talking about bats don't take to bat boxes as readily as people think. It's, you know, it's because we're really we're kind of just learning what they like and don't like when it Mm -hmm. comes to to artificial roosts. It's uh it may seem very simple on the surface, but we've come to find out it appears that bats really like sunlight on their roosts because we've had people put up bat boxes in shady areas and and they don't really get used. Mm. And uh, a lot of people now are starting to look at like roost design. Uh, do rocket boxes work? And for those of y'all that don't know, rocket boxes are uh, basically you have a square pole and then you on the top like third of it you build a box with where there's like an inch gap that the bats can roost Uh, in and uh, some people prefer those some people prefer the chamber boxes which is where you have kind of slats of wood and there's different chambers that the bats can climb up into and uh but the biggest thing that i can stress is if you are planning on putting up a bat box the absolute worst thing you can do is nail it to the side of a tree if you put a bat box on the side of a tree, it will not get used. You'll have wasp nests, and that's about it. 
So <laughs> yeah, and, and and I mean, I think that goes with pretty much about any kind of box you want to put up, other than like an owl box or something like that. Right. I was but, say, what about our screech well, owl no. box out there? <laughs> no, a lot of people put bluebird houses up, and when they put bluebird oh, houses yeah. up, cats, mm-hmm. rat snakes, everything goes up there and feeds on them. Mm-hmm. Owls are a little bit better from the standpoint of if anything gets out there with them, they're going to take care of you right. know defending it. But for the most part, you know, bat boxes and other things you want if you can put it on a post. Right. You know, and put it where you need to put it. But by any means whatsoever, we're not discouraging anyone from putting up bat houses by any means. We just want them to put them up correct. as correct as we know know it yeah, is today. Yeah, I was going right? to say, if you do have bats in your house and, you, and you're trying to get them to move or something like that, you want that bat box to be as... Uh, as beneficial as possible because yep. that's going to give you the greatest chance to get them out of there. Yep. Where if they see a bat box nailed to a tree while they're flying, they're like, well, I got a whole <laughs> attic I can be in right yeah. now. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, with bat conservation international and, uh, other bat organizations, they've actually, if you just Google how to place bat house box, you will come up with yeah. a slew of suggestions and tips and, the best ones that I from the bat boxes I've surveyed, what I've noticed about them is they're at least at least twelve foot off the ground, and it appears to be the higher the better. Mm. So if you are able to get it up high, uh, you want it near a tree line, but not in a tree line, and that's so the bats, whenever they emerge, like they got to do that little J dip as they fly. You don't sure. want them crashing into limbs and stuff like that. And then they, like I said, they want it to be sunny and warm, and so you want to try and find an area that gets it probably around five hours of sunlight and if you can be choosy maybe get morning sun they seem to like the morning sun better than the evening sun yeah i mean i mean bat houses are always a good thing to put up for me i think probably what's equally as important as putting up bat houses watch what you're spraying on your yard mm-hmm. you know pesticides kill the food that the mm-hmm. bats eat and and so we got to be very careful with that kind of stuff but i think the other thing that would probably help our listeners quite a bit is what what would happen Let's just say it's a beautiful spring evening. You've got the windows open. You may not have screens on your windows, and a bat flies in the house. What, what What's the best thing to do? So, number one, in that instance. Or uh, if you find a bat, too. That's yeah, 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 do. yeah. Uh, so, in that instance, stay, stay calm. The bat is not going to purposefully do anything to you. Whenever you start screaming and hollering, that's going to agitate the bat. <laughs> That's gonna Bad. agitate. That's gonna agitate everybody else in the house. It's gonna agitate if you have dogs or cats. They're gonna start wondering what the heck's going on, and uh, you want to try and limit as many people's exposure to it as possible. But the the biggest thing that seems to and it's the most often made mistake. Don't immediately let the bat out of the house. I know that seems counterintuitive, <laughs> but if you can. Try and shut it off into a secluded room that nobody's going to go to, and then call your local wildlife agency or uh, I think it's called DHEC here in uh, South yeah, Carolina. Uh, yeah, and, and health and environmental. The, the reason behind that is, uh, say you get the bat out of the house, you're like, "Whoa, thank God that's over with." Yeah. And uh, turns out your dog might have been bit, or saliva may have gotten on the side of your hand, or a kid's hand, or someone in the house. Well, now uh, we can't test that bat to see if it even has anything, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. which it probably doesn't. But right. in the instance that it would, we have nothing to test, so we have to assume the worst, and you have to go get rabies vaccinated and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Where if you keep the bat in a secluded room, 
DHEC can tell you how to safely remove it and to make sure that no one is exposed. So that way mm. you have kind of a backup if something happens. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, I, I know there's a lot of resources on, on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And just like anything else with the Internet, you know, there's all kinds of things out there. But if mm-hmm. you stick to the big ones, like you said, BCI, Bat Conservation International, mm-hmm. uh, North North America Bat yeah. is another one. And, and hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, man, they, they rock too. They've got some they've got some wonderfully informative folks obviously that work with them and, and are passionate and they're a great resource as well <laughs> so make sure you check all those out and everything trevor you got anything else to add anything else you want to make sure we people know well i just i really hope that it, by listening to this you have at least an appreciation for bats now and uh, and, and yeah. get out get outside and look for these guys they're they're really cool to see from a safe distance, of course. But, of course, yeah. But, like, if you're walking in the woods and you see one roosting in a tree or something, like, just take take a minute to just kind of, like, watch what it does. Like, sometimes, sure. if you're lucky, they might uh, wake up and clean themselves or something like that. Or flap their wings or, for, like, yeah. cooling. And, you know, and the other thing, too, is a lot of our state parks and national mm-hmm. parks, county parks and things like that will do bat programs. Yeah. And, and they'll bring in bat experts and stuff. And, and just like we did tonight, we brought in a bat <laughs> expert. Yeah, we did. And, uh, and, and go to some of those programs and really kind of really kind of foster an appreciation for bats because they're they're amazing amazing animals yeah so we uh south carolina has a bat week they do every year i'm pretty sure it's in october i, I have to get clarified on that oh <laughs> they sure go that's every year. and uh but um they actually go to some towns that have bat boxes put up and they make a, a big event out of it where they watch the bats emerge out of the boxes oh and, that's so and cool. you get to see a, a decent amount of bats come overhead and you you can kind of actually watch them kind of whip around as they're catching stuff and kind of uh, figuring out what's going on with all the people there and it's really amazing to watch it's, well it's always fun when you go to like ball games and stuff and you see the bats flying around the lights yeah. and stuff like that <laughs> and then that's like we are we're in our pool at night and the mm-hmm. bats are flying around and healthy bats i mean they can detect a, a, a human hair hanging from the ceiling oh yeah. they're not going <laughs> to fly into your face and get caught in your hair exactly. and stuff so just remember that but it can be a little disconcerting at first it, it when they're like be. swooping around and getting close but after yeah. you realize that they're not going to bonk into you. And it's yeah. uh, another thing, I don't know how much more time we have, but uh, that I kind of want to just mention at least, is if you do appreciate bats and you want to start managing for them, uh, manage for some insects. That's a lot. Oh, that's of, a good call. Insects get a bad rap too, and I'm not going to dive into that whole thing. But <laughs> but if we really care about bats, we have to start watching uh, their food source. And it's... If, the one statistic I read, it said if every person on in the U.S. let one square foot of their yard just grow naturally, we would increase uh, insect habitat. I think it was by like something like a million acres, some insane wow. number like that. And sure. it, that it benefits everyone, benefits the bats, benefits the bugs, benefits you. You have less to mow. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, and, and we talked about this too. Uh, also, underneath your trees and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, leave it natural. Yeah. You know, leave the leaf litter because not only is it beneficial for bats, but also a lot of insects, they pupate in the leaf litter, mm-hmm. are beautiful and wonderful lightning bugs i mean they benefit directly from the leaf litter so i think you know we always talk about this too with the whole monoculture crap that we do Mm -hmm. in lawns and the amount of chemicals and water that's wasted on lawns just to make them pretty they're basically deserts so 
you know, shrink the size of your lawn, mm-hmm. not the size of your yard, and make your, your yard a little more wildlife friendly, and it'll be beneficial for and, bats and everything. You yeah, know? And, and on that, too, just to give people a little more incentive, some states actually have uh, these programs where you can get, you, if you let your uh, yard kind of become more native habitat, you can actually get it certified as certified wildlife habitat, and it, some states offer things such as, like, tax breaks and wow. stuff like that to to help people do that more often to benefit we, we'd never guys. pay taxes out here <laughs> <laughs> we we got it going on out here with uh with the land we haven't really seen a lack of it but you know when you talk about encouraging uh, insects and stuff we're not telling people to put a baby pool out there and just let the water get stagnant and attract mosquitoes we're talking no. about being being more friendly for your yard to attract a multitude of many mm-hmm. mostly terrestrial mm-hmm. i mean like grasshoppers and and yeah. uh, all kinds of things that fly around so mm-hmm. yeah well that's cool awesome well, I tell you, this podcast has been so good. I think we're going to split it into two because Trevor's been so gracious to come out here and spend his time with us and share his knowledge. And it's obviously true. A lot of you're, great information. You're, you're very passionate about bats, and I think we both can appreciate people that are passionate about nature. And so, yes. thank you so much for for coming out here for us. Yes. But uh, and as we come to the end of a podcast, we always do a teaser time. But teaser time. I don't think we can tease what we're doing this time. I don't time. think we can. We just got to kind of come out and say it. Well, I'm a, if this is a special trip. Especially for you, it is. Um, so, what are we? Where are we going to be? We podcasting? are going to podcast from the West Highland Way on the west coast of Scotland. Wow! Whoa! We're doing an eight-day hike, ninety-six miles yeah. up the west coast. Because who's uh, who's not excited about going on vacation and hiking <laughs> ten miles a day? <laughs> Who could that be? So. Super excited! Well, it's so. going to be an interesting podcast because I know Jack Squat about the wildlife and stuff in right. Scotland. I'm going to learn and try to poke out some stuff, but I, you can go to a place where you don't know anything and appreciate the beauty and, yeah, and diversity is there. We'll, we'll talk and about just that. just talking about what we are seeing while we're on the trail mm-hmm. and, and experiencing. And hopefully we'll run across some wildlife out there on the moors and mountains and... I was going to say, I'll definitely be listening to see if y'all run into any Scotland bats. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to man. be on the lookout for yeah. you. That would be That would definitely cool. be a shout-out. Trevor's like, yeah. man, Trevor, we just saw a bat. You know? But it may be associated with a vampire and werewolves because we know moors. Oh. they got to have vampires. In there, so. Well, cool. Well, that's going to do it for our podcast this time, and, and we appreciate our, our very special guest coming in here. Yes, sir. And, man, Trevor, what what do you, who do you work for now currently? So currently I'm working for South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Mm. Uh, my past work, I was a grad student at Austin P. State University in western Tennessee. Wow. And I was part of the Haas Ecophysiology Lab. They, wow. If you are interested in any uh, bat work on the college scale, uh, definitely go check them out. She has a Twitter page and a website and all Sweet. sorts of stuff. So, well, I tell you, we're glad to have you in South Carolina working for you know, uh, you know, a lot of people think of South Carolina Department of Natural Resources as the game wardens and stuff like that. Man, they are so much more than the game wardens, yeah. and they are charged with protecting the beauty and diversity of our state. And I, I for one, kudos to our DNR because they do a fantastic job. I mean, they hire people like Trevor, <laughs> Jen Kendall, and mm-hmm. you know, Susan Loeb. All mm-hmm. those folks who are involved with bats have been so forthcoming with with information and and you know these these folks are passionate about what they do and they care and it's for our benefit so you know we we need to support dnr and uh, and go from there but you can't support dnr unless you're outside walking, walking on, on the, the wild, wild side, side. <laughs> <laughs>